To most people, uh, the Old Testament contains some great stories, uh, but there are also plenty of bits uh, that seem far removed from our lives today. Things like the the regulations for uh, the sacrifices in the tabernacle, uh, for for the priests and so on, they, they seem foreign to us. Uh, but even when it comes to, to the well-known stories in the Old Testament, it can be hard to see how they fit into the overall picture of the Bible. I'll take some of the things that we'll be looking at today. With Abraham's call to sacrifice Isaac, uh, Joseph and his multicoloured coat, the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, they're, they're, they're great stories, but what do they have to do with the coming of Jesus? Uh, are they just examples of, of faith uh, with no real connection to the gospel story? Uh, I saw someone during the week saying that he was once again begging authors of Sunday school notes for children to make the lessons about the Lord Jesus. Well, this morning we're going to see how, how the examples I've given do fit into the bigger picture of the Bible, which is about God's great plan to save a people for himself through Jesus Christ. So far in our look at the big picture of the Bible, in three weeks we've covered about 2,000 years of history. But even though we've covered a lot of time, we haven't actually covered much of the Bible. We've we've barely even covered half of Genesis. And that in itself tells us something. It tells us that the Bible isn't uh, like a, a history textbook which might try and cover each period of time evenly. But rather the Bible focuses in on what God is doing in history. And often in the Old Testament, God, uh, or, or often in the Old Testament, the focus is on what God is doing through certain key individuals. Last week we focused in on Abraham, who dies halfway through Genesis. Uh, but today we're going to cover the rest of Genesis uh, and then go on to events covered in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And the main individual that God uses to move his plan forward in these books is Moses. So even if you can remember the key individuals in your head, that will help you remember the flow of the Old Testament. So we've seen Adam, uh, we saw in the first sermon, him obeying God, experiencing God's blessing. In the second sermon, we saw him and his descendants breaking the covenant God made with them, experiencing God's curse. Then last week, we saw God choosing Abraham and making a covenant with him. Uh, So far then, we've had Adam, uh, Abraham, uh, and we'll have a bit more of Abraham today, and then move on to Moses. Uh, So Moses is, is a big figure in these opening books of the Bible. And each week we've been looking at the big picture under the theme of the kingdom of God, which is made up of four easy to remember elements. God's people, God's place, God's rule and God's blessing. Uh, And so to help us try and hold the main teaching of these books together, we're going to use these four categories as our headings this morning. 
Though we will spend most of our time on the first point, uh, which is God's people. God's people. Are we all God's children? How would you answer that? Are we all God's children? Well, many would say yes. They'd say that everyone in the world is a child of God. And yet Jesus told the religious leaders who refused to believe in him that they were children of their father, the devil. We have lots in the New Testament letters about adoption, about being adopted into God's family. Now, if we go back to the the beginning, uh, people were children of God. Luke describes Adam as the son of God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were God's people. However, when they sinned, their relationship with God was shattered. And from that moment on, every human being would begin life outside of God's family and as God's enemies rather than God's friends. But God's plan to have a people for himself wasn't going to be derailed by Satan. And so last week we looked at God's covenant with Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. And today we're going to see the development of that promise. Uh, And it comes about in a very unlikely way, humanly speaking. We saw last week that God called Abraham when he was 75. His wife Sarah was 65. Humanly speaking, it's not very likely that this elderly, childless couple are going to start a family line which will be so big that it can't be counted. But by faith, Abraham leaves his homeland trusting in God's promises. So Abraham, by faith, leaves everything that's familiar to him and then nothing happens. Years pass and still nothing happens. And perhaps there are some here who know what it's like to take a huge step of faith for God. People around you think you're, you're mad, but you think, well, this is what God's calling me to do. And it hasn't really turned out the way you've imagined. That was the case for Abraham and Sarah. And so what do they do? Well, they don't wait on God. They decide to take things into their own hands, which which was a big mistake. They arrange that Abraham will sleep with Sarah's maidservant and have a child that way. Rather than wait on God's timing, they conclude that God needs them to give his plan a helping hand. But as always happens, the attempt to move God's plan along by human effort backfires and brings misery and heartache to those involved. But finally, when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, uh, Sarah becomes pregnant. You can almost picture Sarah turning up at the local hospitals if they'd gone gone to hospitals to give birth in those days. Uh, The nurses at the reception say, well, is it the geriatric unit that you're looking for? She says, no, it's the maternity ward. They say, how lovely. Have you a new great-grandchild? She says, no, I'm here to have a baby. And if those around them would have been laughing at the thought, Abraham and Sarah had laughed 
uh, disbelievingly when God told them. And yet it happened just as God had said. So how does this story fit into the big picture of the Bible? Well, as we saw last week, the New Testament describes God's uh, promise to Abraham as a gospel promise. And one of the things that this is teaching us is that for the gospel to go forward, it will take more than human effort. It will take God to do what's humanly impossible. How can we get right with God? Not through human effort. Not through doing things to try and earn us points with God, but only by his grace. How are we going to see our our friends and family members come to believe in Jesus? We can witness to them till we're blue in the face. We We can plan a week of team activities, but ultimately we need God to work. How are we going to see our churches grow? Again, not through human effort and energy, not through improvements to the building. We need God to bring people in. Do we realise that? We need God to work. And actually that should give us confidence because God is the God who brings life from the death, life from the dead. Uh, We we see him doing that uh, through these opening books of the Bible, bringing uh, children to barren women, uh, bringing Isaac uh, back from the dead, uh, symbolically speaking. Maybe we look around and see there's so much deadness. and Maybe maybe at the start we think we can do something about it, but we realise we can't, uh, and yet God can. Humanly speaking, we don't have a hope of changing the narrative that churches in Scotland are declining and closing. But God can. God can. In fact, according to last week's Financial Times, it said evangelical churches in Scotland are reviving. Uh, If that is the case, imagine that, that we would miss out on that because we'd given up through lack of faith. Seeing God at work has a profound effect on Abraham. And when the promised child Isaac is still a young boy, God tells Abraham to go and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham has a knife in his hand, about to kill his only son when God stops him. It's an amazing story, especially when we remember that Abraham didn't know how it was going to end. In fact, from the book of Hebrews, we can take it that Abraham thought that he would kill Isaac and God would somehow raise him back to life. But what's the point of this story if we're talking in terms of the bigger picture? Does it just show how wholeheartedly Abraham obeyed God? Well, it does show that, But it also shows that Abraham had such faith in God's promises uh, that he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead rather than break his promise. We see that Hebrews 11, 19. And even more than that, Abraham's words to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Those words would be ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. 
when God himself provided the true and final sacrifice for sins. God would provide the lamb. Well, yes, later on in the story, they find don't they, a ram caught in the thickets. But Abraham is speaking there better than he knew, prophesying of the coming of Jesus, uh, whose day, uh, as we saw last week, Abraham rejoiced to see that day. We move on to the next generation. Isaac grows up, gets married. Uh, he and his wife Re- Rebecca have twins. Uh, before they're born, God tells Rebecca that the older will serve the younger. And it's the younger son, Jacob, who receives his father's blessings and whose descendants will be the people of God. Why the younger one? Is it because God foresaw that Jacob would be better than Esau? Well, no, Jacob's very name means deceiver. And the Apostle Paul explains in Romans that God chose Jacob even though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's promise or purpose of election might stand. That's still the way God works. If we are Christians today, it's not because we're better than anybody else. It's simply because God, in his grace, chose us and called us to himself. If you're not a Christian today and think you could never be good enough to be a Christian, well, well, you're right. But it's not about being good enough. It's about God's gracious choice and faith in his promises. When Jacob grows up, he has 12 sons. It's a big family. You couldn't quite call it a great nation yet, but the promise is beginning to be fulfilled. And yet, what sort of family are they? Well, they're pretty dysfunctional. Joseph is his father's favourite and gets a many-coloured coat, but his brothers hate him and sell him into slavery in Egypt. Where is God in all this, we might wonder? Only years later does it start to make sense. Famine strikes and God's people would have been wiped out if it wasn't for Joseph. But instead he brings them to Egypt where they thrive. Even though they become slaves to the Egyptians, by the time they leave there are around 2 million people. 600,000 men as we read in Exodus 12. It's phenomenal growth. And it's all in fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham. In Egypt, God sends ten plagues, culminating in a final plague which sees every firstborn in the land die. So why are the firstborn sons of the Hebrews not killed? Well, not because they're better than the Egyptians, but because each family has killed a lamb and smeared its blood on their door frames. They're protected by the blood of another. Saved because of the bloods of the Lamb. So God isn't just calling together any group of people. He's calling together a people of promise who escape God's wrath because of the blood of the Lamb. And so millennia later when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. People know what he's talking about. Another will die the death they deserve. This first promise, this people promise is still being fulfilled today. 
Through Jesus, God is calling together a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Heaven will be a vast multitude of people from all nations. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we get to be a part of that. So firstly, this morning, God's people. Uh, We'll cover the next three categories more briefly. And uh, just following the order of these opening books of the Bible, we'll look secondly at God's rule. So firstly, God's people. Secondly, God's rule. Do you like people telling you what to do? It's not something we naturally warm to. We tend to see law as something restrictive, uh, though, uh, though the law, uh, when, when we're driving on the road, uh, I don't think we say it restrictive that everybody has to drive the same way on the motorway. Uh, if there were no uh, laws on, on the highways, it would be chaos. Is it restrictive for parents to tell their their small children that they're not allowed to to go out and cross a busy road by themselves? Is it restrictive for parents to tell children that they can't eat chocolate all day? Parents give children rules for their good. And since we are God's children, he knows what's best for us. Here's another question. What was the happiest time in the history of the world? Well, surely the happiest time in the history of the world was back in the beginning when Adam and Eve were living under God's rule. It's disobedience which brought about pain, suffering and death. So if God's people are to enjoy his blessing, they must be under his rule. The two go together. You will not know blessing in your life, even as a Christian, if you're living in disobedience to God. And so the first thing that God does after he brings his people out of slavery in Egypt is give them his laws. Now these weren't new laws. Murder was wrong before uh, the people ever heard the words, you shall not murder, proclaimed from Mount Sinai. These were rules God's people had always known. But now they're being brought face to face with them. God spells them out in a way that leaves no doubt uh, as to what his standards are. The Ten Commandments, they reflect what God is like. And they show how very unlike God we are. And the fact that the Ten Commandments reflect God's character makes them different from some of the other laws that God gave Some of the other laws will deal with the national life of Israel when they're in the promised land. Uh, Those are are sometimes known as the the civil laws, the the judicial laws. Uh, They're often the Ten Commandments applied to uh, specific cultural situations. God would also give his people uh, ceremonial laws, for example, about what sort of food that they could and couldn't eat. But those laws weren't God saying that it was morally better uh, to eat one sort of animal than another. Uh, They're simply God getting his people used to the fact that, that because they're his people, they must live differently to those around them. Uh, And in our day, uh, that's not seen in us eating a different diet, but living a different lifestyle. Uh, So some of these other laws uh, fade away. Uh, 
We could even look at them and say that they had, they had built in obsolescence. But the Ten Commandments are unique. Only they are spoken directly by God. Only they are written on stone. Only they are kept in the Ark of the Covenant. They point us to God's character and sum up his moral standards. And that's why they still apply today. So people can misunderstand the Ten Commandments by saying that they don't apply anymore. But they can also misunderstand them by thinking that keeping the Ten Commandments is what makes people right with God. But that wasn't true then and it's not true now. Think about when God gives his people the Ten Commandments. Does he come to them when they're in Egypt in slavery and say, well, here are ten rules, and if you keep these rules perfectly, then I'll rescue you from slavery? Not at all, because they'd still be there. Instead, he rescues them from slavery. Then he gives them the Ten Commandments. The very introduction to the Ten Commandments reminds them that they already know God's favour. And so keeping the commandments isn't about earning God's favour. God begins, I am the Lord your God. He brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. The people of God in Moses' time were called to keep the Ten Commandments out of gratitude at what God had done for them. And we're called to keep them for the same reason. As God's people, we are called to live differently from those around us. When the future George VI was a boy, his mother would uh, remind him before public events. He would say, she would say, Bertie, never forget who you are. Never forget who you are. He was a royal prince and should behave accordingly. And we're the same. The Apostle Peter reminds those he writes to, you are a chosen people, a holy nation. And not only does breaking God's commandments bring misery in the long run, it also misrepresents him to the world around us. You shall be holy, he says, because I am holy. So that's our second point. God's rule in these first six books of the Bible is focused on the Ten Commandments. Yes, there are other laws that the people are to keep while they're in the Promised Land. But even from the start, the Ten Commandments tower above the others. The ceremonial laws about diet and worship no longer apply today. The, the civil laws about how to live in the land of Canaan no longer apply but the Ten Commandments are God's unchanging rule for humanity. So God's people, God's rule. Thirdly, uh, and closely connected to, to this, is God's blessing and presence. God's blessing and presence. What was the greatest blessing that Adam and Eve lost when they sinned? Was it an unspoiled creation was it the blessing of, of the garden paradise of Eden? Was it perfect relationships with each other? Was well, sad as it was to lose all those things. The greatest blessing that Adam and Eve lost was fellowship with God, an unspoiled relationship with God. 
And that, above all, is what Jesus came to restore. The purpose of redemption is relationship. The purpose of redemption is relationship. Relationship with God, first and foremost, but also with each other. Now that God's people are redeemed from slavery and living under his rule again, they will be able once more to enjoy his presence. And in these early books of the Bible, the presence of God is focused in on the tabernacle. What is the, the tabernacle, boys and girls? I'm not sure if you've, you, you know the word tabernacle. Uh, well, basically what you had was a big, a big courtyard, sort of a big fenced off area. And inside it, you had a tent, a big tent. And that tent was uh, divided into two sections. Uh, there was the holy place and the most holy place. And inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And the tabernacle uh, was a picture of God's presence on earth. Listen to these words from Exodus 29. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. At the very end of the book of Exodus, we read about the dramatic moment that the glory of the Lord comes and fills the tabernacle. God is among his people once again. In Eden, Adam and Eve had been put out from God's presence. But now the the tabernacle is is built, the tabernacle is set up and God is, is present with his people once again. And how significant it would be then when Jesus Christ would come, God in the flesh. And John 1.14 would say, if we translate it literally, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's uh, the, the, the picture behind the word for dwelt there. Just as God was present in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, he was present in the new, in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is is present with his people. It's amazing, but it also creates a problem. How can the holy God dwell among a sinful people without destroying them? How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people without destroying them? From the very start, God's people had failed to keep the Ten Commandments. They deserved to face his judgment. And so all the regulations about sacrifices, especially in Leviticus and Numbers, are there to deal with this problem. Or at least those sacrifices couldn't deal with the problem. They're there to point to the one who could deal with the problem. Because as the book of Hebrews would tell us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Years later, a more permanent version of the tabernacle would be built called the temple. In it was a curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. And what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? The curtain is torn in two. The symbolism is unmistakable. The way to God's presence is now open for all who will go in through what Hebrews calls the new and living way, which has been opened up for us, the blood of Jesus. 
The greatest blessing that human beings can know is the presence of God. And that's what the tabernacle and the sacrifices are all about. And that's what we can know today through Jesus Christ. Fourthly, finally this morning, really just in closing, we see God's place. God's place. Once the law had been given and the tabernacle set up, the Israelites were God's people. They were under God's rule. They were enjoying God's blessing. But they were a people without a land. They were a people without a land. And so a big chunk of these first six books of the Bible focuses on the people's entrance into the promised land. After the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea and their detour to meet with God on Mount Sinai, the book of Numbers begins with the Israelites ready to set out on their journey into the promised land of Canaan. The land is within their grasp. Surely nothing can go wrong now. But what, if, what should have taken a few months takes almost 40 years. And almost from the word go, the people are grumbling against the leadership of Moses and his brother Aaron. They start looking longingly back to Egypt. Just like we as Christians can sometimes look longingly back to life in the world and imagine that life would have been better there. And the final straw comes when the spies uh, sent to scout out the land of Canaan bring back a bad report. There's no denying it's a great place. But they say there's no way we'll be able to conquer these people. They're, they're giants. And we're like grasshoppers. This attitude is still alive and well today. And those within the church who have God's promises ringing in their ears, but they look out and see all the potential obstacles and they say, well, the government's so hostile and the people just aren't interested and so they do nothing. Sadly, the people believe the report of the spies, despite the protests of two of them, Caleb and Joshua. So how does God respond to their lack of faith? He judges them. All that generation except those two spies, Caleb and Joshua, will die before they enter the land. And the book of Hebrews draws a connection and warns us that just as they didn't reach the promised land because of unbelief, so it would be possible for us to fail to reach heaven through unbelief. Fast forward 40 years and that generation dies and the people are on the very brink of the promised land. At that moment, Moses preaches a 34-chapter sermon, which we have in our Bibles as the book of Deuteronomy. In it, at the very end of his life, he sums up all that God has done for them up to that point. Addressing the new generation, he warns them not to throw it all away like their fathers had done. In two of the closing chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses pronounces God's blessing if they will obey and the curses that they'll face if they disobey. And the list of curses ends with a warning that if they disobey, they will be uprooted from the land and scattered among the nations. 
The book of Joshua then describes a new generation crossing the Jordan River and entering the promised land, taking possession and driving out the nations that were already there. And yet God is clear that these nations aren't being driven out because his own people were righteous, but because those nations in Canaan were wicked. It's another way the promised land pictures heaven where we're told in Revelation that nothing unclean will dwell there. The book of Joshua moves towards its conclusion on a high note. Uh, There's a great summary in chapter 21. Uh, I'll read a few verses from it. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. God's people are in God's place. They're under his rule and they're enjoying his presence and blessing. It's a a glorious picture of what the kingdom of God is like. But will it last? Will it last? Like Moses, Joshua gives a farewell sermon warning that if they sin, God will drive them away from the land. And sadly, as we'll see, that's what will eventually come to pass. So we've seen this morning the kingdom pictured, and yet the picture soon fades. But praise God that in heaven we will no longer be able to sin, and there will be no possibility of us messing it up. Amen. Well, we've covered some significant events this morning and God has given us songs to sing as we reflect on these events and and the lessons we can learn from them. One of those songs is Psalm number 78, Psalm 78b. Psalm 78b, we'll be singing from 4 to the end. Psalm 78b, 4 to the end, page 178. Page 178, verse 5 here talks about God's rule. His testimony and his law in Israel heated place and charged our fathers it to show to their succeeding race. Uh, But verse 8 warns about those who failed to keep it. Think of the amazing blessings the people had as they came out of Egypt. Uh, They saw God do amazing miracles, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, and yet they died through unbelief. And as those who live in the days after an even greater act of redemption than the Red Sea, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, may we not be like them and fall through unbelief. So Psalm 78, 4 to the end, we'll stand to sing praise. <laughs>